0: Welcome to a very special edition of the Faith in Politics podcast. We're coming to you live from the JPIC conference, where we've been talking all about the ideas of renewal and rebellion.
1: Yes, renewal, rebellion, climate and the economy. We've been talking to Barry Gardner, Anthony Reddy, who's a theologian, and Christine Allen, who's the director of Cathod, all about these issues. And later on, me and Rosella are going to be talking about whether Christians should engage in direct action for the climate. We've got loads to get through, so let's jump straight in to our first interview with Barry Gardner MP. Now Barry Gardner has been the Labour MP for Brent North since 1997. He's currently the Shadow Minister for International Climate Change as well as Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade and in the past he's also served as Ed Miliband's Special Envoy on Climate Change and Environment. One of the things we're trying to do at the conference today is to cultivate imagination as a way of envisioning a different future. A world beyond the climate crisis will necessarily have to look very different to our world today. But to create that new world, we have to first imagine what it might look like. So we've been encouraging people to ask what-if questions throughout the day. What if every government policy had to pass a climate test? What if all churches became carbon neutral? What if we measured the economy by well-being rather than GDP? These sorts of questions. So we've asked each of our interviewees today what their what-if question would be. So let's listen to Rosella's chat with Barry. We recorded these interviews in the green room at the conference and uh, one of our other interviewees, Anthony Reddy, has a rather wonderful but booming voice which you can hear in the background so apologies for that but this is a really great interview
0: thank you barry very much for joining us at the conference and on the faith and politics podcast we have a couple of questions based on some of the things that we've been talking about today and i guess the first one we'd really like to hear you talk about is how do you think the economy needs to change to deal with the climate crisis
2: our economy is structured in such a way that the people who benefit from it control the structure. And that means that we are destined always to see uh, a large minority of the population who are in difficulty. That's why we have um, four million Food parcels being given out in the fifth richest country in the world—one half million of them to Um, children—that's why we have the homelessness crisis that we have. So, what we need to do is we need to restructure our economy. So it's not focused around GDP growth. It's not focused around profit for. Uh, the companies, but it's focused around wealth building for the community, for society as a whole. And and that means that we need to be taking the public policy decisions um, that benefit society as a whole and not that enable capital and resource resource to be privatized um, to those who actually control the structure of our economy.
0: I guess one of the questions that we were thinking about is in terms of how this interacts with our politics, and we're wondering, does the way our political system, uh, the way that that's constructed, prevent effective tackling of the climate climate crisis?
2: It need not, Um, and one of the, the great things in the past, well, 20 years now, um, has been the the bipartisanship that there was around the 2008 Climate Change Act. Um, that set a really good framework, a really good structure for delivering on what the science was telling us. So it said that we should have this long-term target, at that stage it was 80% reductions on 1990 levels by 2050. We now know that that 80% is not enough and that's why last year we moved to a net zero target by 2050. Um, But more importantly than just setting a long-term target, that's easy for politicians, we can do long-term targets because, you know, with the best will in the world, Come 2050, I'm going to be 93 years of age, um, so I don't mind setting any target for for 2050. What I need to ensure that I get to that or that the country gets to that target in 2050 is I need short- and medium-term binding carbon budgets. And that's what the Climate Change Act put in place, and that was really important. And those budgets have to be independently assessed. They are by the Committee on Climate Change, so they recommend those budgets. And critically, they don't recommend them to government they recommend them to Parliament. So Parliament actually sets that framework and then the government is legally bound to deliver it. And that's really important. So I think we've got the right macro framework. problem at the moment is that those intermediate steps, those carbon budgets, the fourth and fifth carbon budget, we're not on track to deliver on that. And we're, remember, that is only to achieve the 80% reduction by 2050. We actually now need net zero by 2050, um, and that's going to be a lot more difficult. So we really do need to see a huge increase in the ambition of government, um, particularly not just in the power sector, but particularly in transport and in energy efficiency in housing and buildings. Um, those are the areas that we really need to work on.
0: And finally, as we'll be asking all of our interviewees today, um, what would your what-if question be?
2: What if Jesus were sat at the cabinet table? What if he simply sat there? What if he said nothing? What if he just sat there? How would the decisions that Cabinet takes then be different? Because the trouble with God is that everything's transparent to God. And the other trouble with God is that, ultimately, there's no other judge of our actions.
3: Not the electorate,
2: not your party
3: but God
2: and if everybody acted as if Jesus was sitting around the cabinet table I think we might have a very different sort of politics
0: that's fantastic thank you very much for speaking with us and for sharing the day with us
2: great pleasure
1: great to hear the political angle on these issues from barry there one of the great things about this conference is that we're bringing people together with different expertise so now we'll listen to an interview with anthony reddy who'll bring a more theological angle anthony thank you very much for agreeing to answer a few questions for us you're one of the foremost theologians in the country particularly around black theology post-colonial theology This conference, particularly, is about renewal and rebellion, about the economy and the environment. So how can we link together this kind of post-colonial critique, the idea of empire, with what's happening with the climate crisis?
3: I think one of the ways, uh, and I think suggested in the title, is that when we talk about renewal, it's not about a renewal of our practices in terms of how we develop different economics, different social relationships, different ways of organising, for example, the economy. It's also about how what St Paul talks about, the sort of renewal of one's mind. So how can we rethink what it means to be human, particularly given the the history of exploitation that lies in the West and the industrial North in terms of how we were treated so-called, the global South or, or the sort of majority peoples of the world. And therefore, I think one of the things that post-colonial analysis does is just get us to to look at history again and to and to rethink what we have been told as truth and what is is good um, and what has been perceived as being normative so actually it's about sort of looking through different lenses so I think think one of the things we often say is post-colonial analysis is that what you see in front of you Is determined by what kind of optics you have in the first place. So, if you you uh, choose a metaphor, if you have rose-tinted glasses, spectacles, then of course you look out, and of course that's what you see. You see in front of you a particular vision of the world and how things are through that lens. So, what would happen if we chose the optics? We said, actually, let's see the world through the experience of the most marginalised. Of those who have been what one scholar called the underside of history, the ones who have not mattered, the ones who have had their lands taken from them, the ones whose lands are now disappearing, for example, in the Pacific, because of their low level place uh, within oceans that are rising. How then would we see the world differently? And I think that's what the gospel imagines us to do that Jesus' ministry amongst the poor and the marginalised and the oppressed is an invitation to imagine
1: what God's economy would look like if we put the poor and the marginalised first. So when we think about the climate change conversation, what can we as Christians distinctively bring to that conversation which is perhaps missing elsewhere? Yeah.
3: I think it's a sense of giving a personality to creation. And by that I mean that we often think about, uh, um, of 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 the planet is just something that's there that we just happen to have inhabited it by by some kind of look, some kind of you know of all the planets in the world in the solar system we've ended up on this one and it's developed so this is where we, where we live what we are, what we have within the Christian narrative is a particular understanding of creation that says that this is what God in, God intended this is God's best efforts this is what God has created for us to inhabit and therefore the motivation for for looking after it is not just self-interest it's because there's something intrinsically special about Mm. this world this planet in which we're in and caring about it is also intrinsically linked to our own betterment as people it's it's, it's that we are co-creators with god in this creation and therefore what we bring is i think is not some kind of superior knowledge, it's just a different vantage point, it's just a different angle of, of understanding that says that um, this gift we have is, a, is is a precious one and we are stewards of it and it's our responsibility to treat it with care and consideration as we ourselves would want to be treated.
1: Thinking about that imagination that we can bring to the conversation, we've been asking these what-if questions during the conference today what would your what if question be okay so right at the center
3: of what we believe is this basic dictum that says that to be in solidarity with God is to love God with all that we possess and to love our neighbors as ourselves so what if we were really committed to loving our neighbor and not just the neighbour with a kind of asterisk that says, we we'll love our neighbour, but in, in brackets, but these are all the people like we kind of want to edit out because like, they're not really our neighbour. What if it was just love your neighbour, full stop? And by that we mean love all humanity. And love it all as much as you yourself would want to be loved. So not somehow that we are special and they're not quite as special as us, but actually we are special because all of us are special. And it's because all of us are special that I'm special. So sometimes it's what some uh, Africans call um, Ubuntu. I am because we are, and Mm -hmm. we are because I am. So what would happen if we just had that love that said that all of us truly matter, and therefore climate justice matters because it matters to all of us, and especially to those who are at the sharp end of experiencing that as we speak.
1: Anthony ready? thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Some challenging stuff there from Anthony, particularly like the idea that we as Christians give the world a personality almost, that it's not just a convenient rock hurtling through space, but it's a home created for us by a creator and how that might give us even more motivation to want to save that planet. Our third and final interview is with Christine allen will provide an international development angle on some of these topics. I'm here with Christine Allen, who's the director of CAFOD, which is Catholic agency for overseas development. Um, So as an international development agency, how do you respond to those perhaps from the global south, from developing countries, who might say that the climate change movement is denying them the growth that the more developed nations have had?
4: We are all posing the question, what kind of growth? What kind of development? Mm. And what we've seen over the last few years, whether it be in the, in the work that led up to the Sustainable Development Goals or the, the, the nature of the conversations around uh, the climate negotiations, is the sense of justice that is, that is needed in all of our, our conversations and our narratives. So this isn't about saying, oh no, you, you're not allowed to grow, but it's about what kind of growth. And we in the Western industrialised world have um, pumped out more, more carbon dioxide and more greenhouse gases into the planet. We've contributed so much more towards the, the, the destruction of our environment than so many countries of the South. So it is time for us to repent and to turn from that, and to do our own growth and development differently. And that is an important lesson because when you when you look at the kind of growth and development that people in the south, at a community level that we that we work with, they're always they're saying, well, we want to see um, you know access to energy, but we want it to be green, and we want it to be you know a, a kind of fossil fuel powered grid method of providing us energy ain't going to work for us either. You know, this this is a different model. We want to see a kind of economy that is fair and just and inclusive. We want to see opportunities for women and the powerless. And we haven't seen that in your economies. So I often get challenged by people uh, in, the, in communities in the global South about the, about the kind of development that we've been operating as a Western industrialised nature. You should not see that as a blueprint. That is absolutely how not to do it. And that's what people in the South are telling me all the time.
1: Obviously, Cathod is a Christian charity, and more specifically, a Catholic charity. What do you think we as Christians can distinctively bring to the climate conversation?
4: You know, when you talk about things like the environment or the climate, it makes it sound like it's out there. And Pope Francis says, no, we are creatures of God. We are part of God's creation. Creation hasn't been given to us. We've been created along with it. And that changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you see your relationship to the world, how you view the world. And that's what Pope Francis is asking us to do, is see the way in which we need to relate to the world in a different way than we have done in the past. Alongside that, Pope Francis also offers us a great opportunity as a, as a, a world leader. You know, He was absolutely instrumental in 2015 with his document Laudato Si. He absolutely shifted the narrative of, of, climate, of the climate negotiations in that year. And I think for each of us, and we see it across churches now, and particularly within the Catholic Church, where Laudato Si has been taken on board... We're seeing churches changing what they're doing, walking the talk, but also kind of joining in with others. you know the Christian voice, the, the faith voice that is part of a <clears throat> faith voice that is part of our uh, climate um, demonstrations and our witness is a really important voice to stand alongside other people. So yes, we might have a few distinctive things to say. Um, but we also are, are joining our voice with others, that's important. One, final, one, one thing that I do think is important is hope. One of the issues that I I've, I've struggle with in terms of the climate narrative, if you like, is the sense of overwhelming and the and feeling of despair that, that I see in so many people, particularly younger people, you know. And, and it's right that people are passionate about you know, what's going on in the world. It's right that there's an urgency, that we act. But we also need to bring hope into this. And you know, the work of Capod and Christian Aid and Tear Fund and other organisations that are working, particularly with young people, are, is about helping to build that hope in a new world, not just despair in the world that we have now.
1: Finally, Christine, we've been asking what if questions during the day. What would your what if question be? Uh, my
4: what if, my big what if question is what if the people who are powerless, landless, marginalised, and poor in our world set the agenda?
1: What kind of growth, what kind of development do we want to see? was my takeaway phrase from that interview. Really great to hear from Christine there. Now, direct action from groups such as Extinction Rebellion have been one of the hallmarks of climate advocacy in the last year or so. So, me and Rosella have spent a bit of time thinking about what this might mean for Christians, whether we should get involved, what some of the theological issues surrounding direct action are for our monthly musing.
0: So, the theme of the conference was this idea of renewal and rebellion. And rebellion's not often a word you hear used in Christian circles, um, so I thought we'd spend a bit of time thinking about this idea of rebellion and we had a workshop at the weekend on the idea of direct action and the climate crisis, so we've been spending a bit of time thinking about what that means and how we can justify that. So Cameron, what have been your thoughts?
1: Yes, so I suppose when we think about this question of whether Christians should engage in direct action for the climate, There's two questions to separate out, really. There's, There's whether direct action is ever justified for Christians, and then the question of whether the climate crisis is one of those situations where it is justified. So thinking about that initial question, I look to the Bible for some examples of direct action, civil disobedience. It turns out there's loads. So you look to the Old Testament, you see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and how they defied Nebuchadnezzar and end up in the fiery furnace. They were told to do something that their conscience dictated they couldn't do, so they disobeyed that law. The most obvious example would be Jesus in the temple, turning over the tables. I think this is another form of direct action where he saw something that was unjust going on in the house of God, but he didn't kind of get alongside those people who were at the tables. He didn't bring a petition to them and try and encourage them calmly. He went straight for the upturning for the direct action to just stop it and nip it in the bud. You've also been thinking about some examples as well, haven't you?
0: Yeah, so I was encouraged to see there were some
1: some great women who were doing this as well. Um, So we hear about the midwives
0: when Pharaoh was going around um, killing baby boys and they were hiding these children and protecting them in a direct opposition, obviously, to the state there. You also have the case of Rahab who was protecting the Israelites from her own people and from her state and that kind of again very much an act of rebellion against the state
1: there. So I guess this all links into the general point that we as Christians have a higher authority than simply the law of the land or the government of the day. We have our obedience to Jesus and there are going to be certain cases where our obedience to Jesus trumps that to obedience to certain laws or to the state as a whole. I suppose one of the most famous instances of direct action certainly in the last century would be the civil rights movement, which was called le- led by Christians like Martin Luther King Jr. And I think you'd find few Christians who would say that that wasn't a justifiable movement. So that's the initial question of whether it's ever justified, and I think we can quite clearly say yes. Let's move on to the more specific question of whether the climate crisis constitutes one of those situations. So what would be some of the criteria against which we would judge this question?
0: Yes, I think obviously we see that there's lots of examples of direct action and civil disobedience in the Bible but the place where people would perhaps struggle is Romans 13 where it's written that let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And that sounds quite strong and quite scary. But I think it's important that as we look at that, we continue to read on. And this is where the kind of subheadings of the Bible can get in the way of things, because people might see that as that's one section and then we have a little a gap and then Paul moves on to something else. Because the next section is entitled in my version, Love Fulfils the Law. And it says there that whatever other command... There may be a summed up in this one command love your neighbour as yourself love does no harm to a neighbour therefore love is the fulfillment of the law and i think paul isn't making these two separate points here i think he's talked about the importance of respecting authority but he's also saying love is the fulfillment of the law and i think that's where we can see that love for neighbour should trump the law of the land so for me i think that would be an important criteria of whether something is worth rebelling and...
2: Mm.
1: And that Romans 13 verse 1 is one of, I think, the most misused verses in the Bible. I think people can use it positively when they like the governing authorities of the day and then they disregard it when they don't like the governing authorities of the day. And I think it's worth mentioning that Paul also disobeyed the governing authorities at times, so it obviously wasn't a complete rejection of any kind of rebellion there. I think it's worth mentioning that, that there obviously are Christians who are already engaged in direct action for the climate. We've seen not only Extinction Rebellion, but also their Christian arm, which is Christian Climate Action, which have really got people, a lot of Christians, fired up about this. But not only kind of grassroots activists, but also high profile theologians like Rowan Williams has come out in support of what Extinction Rebellion are doing. So there's some big hitters who are behind this movement. I suppose one of the other questions or one of the other criteria be the the pragmatic question, does direct action civil disobedience actually work? And you've got an interesting perspective from working in Parliament now about the two sides of that, haven't you?
0: Yeah, so I've been following the Extinction Rebellion from the start and been quite excited about what they're doing. But I think having been on the The other side of things, it's quite interesting to see how there are times when that approach can shut down conversation, because I think it's important to recognise that people in Parliament recognise this is an issue, and they're trying to hold it into balance with all the other big issues that are going on in the world. They they want to talk about this, but we have to recognise that they're also human beings and feeling attacked by protesters or feeling Yeah, they're not going to want to have a meeting with someone who they feel is attacking them. So I guess talking about love your neighbour earlier, there's also that important point of kind of loving your enemy, so to say, that we need to recognise that there's scope for constructive relationships as well as that act of rebellion.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that, that mixed economy of both is really important, because what Extinction Rebellion have succeeded in doing is moving the needle shifting the framework for the debate. They might have angered quite a lot of people along the way, but the debate takes place in a different framework now, which has enabled those people who take a more collaborative approach, a more relationship-building approach with people in government, to probably achieve more in that way because of the external protests that have taken place. I think those two types of engaging with the issue are both really important. It's not, a, not an either-or.
0: Yeah, and I guess the these acts of protest are not just for the audience of government, but the audience of the wider public, and certainly the work of Extinction Rebellion and similar groups has shifted public discourse into recognising the importance of this issue too.
1: Yes, one of the other things that I was looking at is some material from more conservative theologians who would probably be less likely to support direct action for the climate, and they, because of the biblical examples we've already talked about, are happy saying that there are times where you have to disobey the law of the land to obey Jesus. But the issues you're more likely to hear those people talking about are more likely to be ones around religious freedom, around idolatry. Uh, One particular example would be for um, being prevented from preaching the gospel. So they used the example of acts 4:18 when the apostles are before the Sanhedrin and they're told that they can't preach the gospel but they recognize that that's something they have to do so they disobey they go out and they keep preaching the gospel and so i think the criteria for perhaps more conservative theologians would be direct action is only justifiable in cases where you're being told to do something that's in direct contradiction to a particular tenant of your Christian faith, to a particular part of the gospel, which is perhaps a more strict criteria that maybe climate change wouldn't meet.
0: So that's an interesting point, actually, about this idea of in Acts, where the disciples are preaching the gospel, that that is an act of rebellion in that sense. Would you consider that to be direct action?
1: I think I would. I think this is a case where there's a difference between direct action and civil disobedience. So I think direct action, as I understand it, is when the protest that you're doing actually directly affects the issue you're protesting about. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the Extinction Rebellion protests where they've blocked off a bridge or they've stopped a flight taking off. The thing they're protesting against is climate change. And the thing they're doing actually directly stops some of the pollution that leads to climate change, so it's a direct effect. Whereas one of the other protests that Extinction Rebellion activists have done, like digging up the lawn at one of the colleges in Cambridge, that act of digging up the lawn doesn't actually stop any pollution, it doesn't have any positive effect on the climate, it's just there to make a point. So that would be civil disobedience if that was breaking a law.
0: Right. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. And I think my instinct there probably would therefore be a more biblical approach to this would be that direct action rather than civil disobedience. Easier to justify when you're actually doing something that stops the injustice.
1: Yeah, it kills two yeah. birds with one stone, doesn't it? When you're making a big point, but also actually making a difference.
0: So I guess to kind of sum things up, what would your concluding thoughts be?
1: Yeah, I think it's it, it has to be quite a nuanced case to make the case for direct action for the climate. And I think it has to be more nuanced because climate change isn't a particular law that we're protesting against. There's not a specific thing we're being told we can't do, but we're going to do anyway. It's it's very much a movement for something big and broad as much as it is a protest against a specific thing. So I think the way that I would get around that is by saying that destroying the planet, destroying our environment, is in direct contradiction to the gospel it's not in direct contradiction to a specific verse or a specific law but it is in contradiction to the broad themes of creation new creation renewal that we're called as christians to be a part of so i think that's how i would say the seriousness of the climate crisis is grounds for protesting directly what about you
0: yeah, so I think, similarly, my thoughts would be that we can see throughout the Bible and throughout history that it's that protest against injustice that is warranted and is justified. I think perhaps the the issue with the climate crisis is that we're not seeing this as an injustice often, because it's so distant from us, this idea that the way I live my life leads to carbon emissions, which changes the weather pattern, which changes how someone's crops in, say, sub-Saharan Africa grow which changes how they survive. So I think for me, I think it's back to this idea of love your neighbour as a justification for climate action. We need to close that gap and recognise that this is a major injustice against our neighbour.
1: Those are our thoughts. Hopefully you can let us know yours on social media too. Your action, dear listeners, if you choose to accept it, is to take some time to think about what your own what if question would be. It's easy, as Christine said, to get bogged down in despair at the way things currently are. So it's really important that we use our imaginations to imagine what a world will be like after the climate crisis. We're going to put a tweet and an Instagram post out asking for what your what if questions are. So, reply to us on there. On Twitter, we're at FIP underscore podcast. On Instagram, Faith in Politics podcast. Let us know your what if questions. We're very lucky at the Joint Public Issues team to have had a poet in residence for the last two years called Lucy Berry. And for our conference, she wrote some poems specifically for the day. So, we're going to close with one of those poems.
5: You and I, inside us, have an empire and a village. Admit it and acknowledge. Now, let's forage for our courage. Citizens of empire are the haywire folk of hellfire, of hiring, firing, miring, and of razor wire and gunfire. Citizens of empire never listen to the village. Empire will imprison any prophet of the village. Empire has the cash, the whips, the slaves and the advantage. Empire screams for tribute which the village cannot manage. Empire drinks the river and the village feels the shortage. Empire starts the carnage and the village needs the bandage. People of the village must rummage through the rubbish, calling through the garbage for the children in the wreckage. Empire knows to massage every message to the village to authorise as classified each image of the pillage. Empire feeds off doubt and debt and luxury and slaughter. Village dreams of crumbs of bread and never-ending water. All of us, inside us, have an empire and a village. Admit it and acknowledge. Now, go forage for your courage.